Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has a list of 12 demands for Iran. We'll discuss the U.S.'s strategic pivot in the Middle East. One way to fight carbon is to require solar on all new building. We'll hear about California's move in that direction. And there are ways to have carbon-free fun. We'll find out about adventure cycling tours. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Mike Pompeo gave a major foreign policy speech on Iran at the Heritage Foundation yesterday. An opinion piece in the Washington Examiner called Pompeo's remarks delusional. A member of the New York Times editorial board called them belligerent. The Washington Post said it set the stage for perpetual conflict with Iran. With me is Trita Parsi. He's with the National Iranian American Council. He founded the organization, and he's the author of Losing an Enemy about the Iran-U.S. Negotiations. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Trita Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. Mike Pompeo laid out 12 items that Iran would have to agree to to um, not incur the U.S. wrath. And these were some pretty chunky items. No uranium enrichment, no ballistic missile development, no involvement in Syria, got to be friends with Saudi Arabia, essentially. It was a pretty tall ask. It was beyond a tall ask. These were asks that we actually have more than 20 years of experience knowing are non-starters. And that's precisely why the reviews of this speech and this strategy has been so negative. If you're putting forward asks that we know are non-starters based on experience and you're combining it with this very belligerent uh, economic warfare strategy, then essentially you're setting this up for conflict because the combination of unattainable uh, demands and uh, an economic warfare strategy is exactly the ingredients you know in order to drive this, not to the negotiating table, but to the conflict area. The Defense Department also put out a statement yesterday, and they said they were willing to double down, and it was it was tough talking as well. And a lot of people look at um, Secretary Mattis at the Defense Department and see somebody who is a buffer between the Trump administration and the Trump administration's uh, crazier policies. On Iran, do, do you feel like the Defense Department is any buffer there? In the past, it's actually very fascinating to see Mattis's journey. He was fired from the Obama administration because he wanted a much tougher policy. He wanted a small confrontation with Iran in the Persian Gulf. And once he got into the Obama administration, he was still pretty hawkish and wanted to go towards some sort of a, uh, escalation. In the past 12 months, however, I think it's quite fascinating to see that he has been a buffer, as you mentioned, that he's been trying to convince the president to stay in the deal, recognizing the tremendous damage that will do to U.S. credibility. But I think it's also another thing. I think that Mattis understands that on the one hand, you cannot afford to have this potential confrontation with North Korea and a potential confrontation with Iran at the same time. And I think he also understands that with the volatility of Donald Trump, 
I'm sure as Secretary of Defense, he would not like to be in a confrontation with Iran when the commander-in-chief is named Donald Trump. The speech yesterday really put the Europeans on notice about where the U.S. is headed. And here's Mike Pompeo talking a bit about that. These will indeed end up being the strongest sanctions in history when we are complete. I've spent a great deal of time with our allies in my first three weeks. I know that they may decide to try and keep their old nuclear deal going with Tehran. That is certainly their decision to make. They know where we stand. Well, uh, what if they keep the old nuclear deal going with Iran? Do, do, do you have a sense that the Europeans are really committed to the deal? I noticed Total, the French oil organization, canceled a deal with Iran. What are the Europeans going to do here? Well, the European governments have made it very clear. They want to keep the deal, and they're looking at various types of instruments that would allow them to protect their companies. Their companies are a little bit more skeptical, not because they want to lose the deal, but they're skeptical of the European government's capacity to truly be able to protect them, because that will take a tremendous amount of political will and a willingness to sustain a a certain degree of economic pain. So you're seeing the companies saying essentially, well, even if you are trying to protect me, I'm not going to take the risk. At the end of the day, I'm not a political player. I'm in it for the profit, and I'm not going to accept this degree of risk. And this is where the challenge for the Europeans are. Their political will and their political gestures are not enough to be able to sustain the deal. To sustain the deal, the Iranians need to be given the economic benefits they were promised in order for them to continue to live up to their obligations under the deal and restrict their nuclear program. So what the Europeans are trying to do right now is a Herculean task. But I think Pompeo's speech may frankly have made their decision a bit easier. Because with this very clear agenda towards confrontation, the Europeans now know very well, if they collaborate and succumb to Trump's pressure, they will speed up this march towards war. If they resist, they will give peace a chance. What if they don't have enough to make the deal work for the Iranians? Uh, If some of their oil companies are going to walk away, they, they just don't have enough. I think this is what Mike Pompeo and John Bolton are hoping for, that they will not have enough. And as a result, the Iranians will restart their program. As they restart their program and as they reduce the inspections, you're going to see headlines such as Iran is... Uh, kicking out inspectors, etc. And that's when we'll get to the next phase in which Trump, Bolton and Pompeo trio will start saying, now we have to take military action because the Iranians have restarted their program. I'm talking with Trita Parsi from the National Iranian American Council, and he's the author of Losing an Enemy about the Iran negotiations. And in a moment, we're going to be talking about a regulation that requires solar on new building in California. Stay tuned. I was looking at some of the rhetoric about this in in Iran. And there there was an Iranian poll that said 67% of Iranians want Iran to retaliate against the U.S. in response to canceling the Iran deal, and they want to restart portions of the country's nuclear program. That's a lot of pressure if 67% want to restart the program. It's a very bad political situation for the government to be in, even if they want to continue to see what uh, the Europeans can do. And, And frankly, I have to say I'm been a bit surprised by the degree of restraint that they've shown so far. But if political pressure from society is such, uh, then that will definitely be a factor that might limit their ability to continue on this path and not restart the program. So what this really comes down to is, 
we had a problem, the problem was resolved, and now Donald Trump has unresolved the problem and created a crisis of choice by walking out of this deal and starting to target European companies and starting punishing the Europeans for living up to a deal that the U.S. itself struck. I wanted to go a little deeper with the ideas that Iran might be having right now. Uh, The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, Iran is in it. Some people seem to be arguing inside Iran that they could pull out. Obviously, this is something North Korea did in the past, and this absolves you of all sins. You you get to do whatever you want if you pull out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. I think that would be a huge mistake for the Iranians to do. I think it would be an extremely negative development if they did something like that. Um, I think keeping them in the NPT, keeping them in the JCPOA is what will maximize security in the region, maximize American security, and also make sure that we don't have proliferation. But we have to be frank. If you're sitting in Tehran right now and you're seeing that you lived up to the deal, there are 10 IAEA reports that said that Iran uh, lived up to all of its obligations, yet the United States is not only walking out of the deal – It is trying to strike a deal with the North Koreans who didn't just have enrichment. They had nuclear weapons. They tested the nuclear weapons. They have ballistic missiles that can reach the United States, things that Iran has none of. Then we have to be realistic that there are going to be some in Tehran who will draw the conclusion that the reason why their deal got messed up by Donald Trump was because they actually didn't have nuclear weapons. If they were in North Korea situation, actually had those things, they would have had much more leverage, and that would have gotten Donald Trump to not only respect the deal and live up to it, but also engage in negotiations that he himself would not sabotage. How do you think Saudi Arabia is feeling right now? I think the Saudis are absolutely delighted because to them, this is not about the nuclear deal. To them, it is about making sure that the United States returns to a very hostile and confrontational approach towards Iran because the Saudis know themselves very well. They don't have the power to be able to compete with the Iranians. They don't have the power to be able to shift the balance of power in the region back to their favor. They can only do so if they can convince the United States to return to the Middle East, adopt a hegemonic military position in the Middle East, and try to recreate the balance of power that existed in the region prior to the invasion of Iraq. From a Saudi perspective, that makes a lot of sense. It maximizes their maneuverability and their security and their interest in the region. From an American perspective, however, I'm not really sure what's in it for the United States, for the U.S. to fight Saudi Arabia's wars. If we're in it for a perpetual conflict with Iran, um, what, what, uh, is there a timeline for that? Because it seems like there's going to be a moment here where sanctions are applied and things happen. And uh, then what? My impression, based on the speed in which the administration is now moving, is that they want to get this as fast as possible. They are probably worried about what's going to happen in the midterm elections, realizing that if you have a Democratic Congress You will have a whole set of new obstacles that Trump would have to deal with, which could slow down his efforts on a whole set of other issues, including this confrontation with Iran. Uh, If you have impeachment proceedings, for instance, or just the reality of having hearings in Congress about many of these issues. There's hardly any hearings on these issues these days because the, the House and the Senate is controlled by the Republicans and they're not holding any hearings that would be challenging to the Trump administration's policies. So my suspicion is that they want to move as fast as possible in order to avoid a scenario in which they would have additional domestic political obstacles. 
Trita Parsi is with the National Iranian American Council, and he's author of Losing an Enemy about Iran's negotiations with the U.S. and the other parties in the nuclear deal. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One way to fight carbon is to require solar on all new buildings. We'll hear about California's move in that direction after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. California is creating a solar mandate for new building. Dan Garino writes about it in Inside Climate News. His article about what's happening in California is, In a first, California requires solar panels for new homes. Will other states follow? We're going to talk about it now with Dan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Good to be here. I wanted to, you know, say something about how far ahead California is on solar, and your article uh, describes uh, the way they've been integrating things into their code and, you know, how many homes are in it, and they have a robust solar industry. Can you give us a little idea about what's going on there? Well, California is light years ahead of other states uh, in terms of um, – in terms of the way that they've been um, modifying their building code with previous versions of the building code so that homes are required to be ready for solar. Um, and then aside from the building code, just just the, uh, the market in California has embraced solar. Um, some of that is because of incentives. Um, a lot of that is because of consumers just wanting rooftop solar. So... Uh, when you look at the, the states that have the most rooftop solar, um, California is the leader by a mile. Um, so it was, um, it, it's a place where um, it doesn't require huge modifications to the building code because there's already been language in there about rooftop solar. And the consumers have already indicated this is kind of a, a direction that they are wanting to go. So, I mean, because if you were to say to us in the Illinois region, you have to, all new building has to be, uh, has to include solar, the builders would kick up a real fuss. In California, the builders didn't really kick up a fuss because it's going on, it's going down already. It's remarkable how this debate was different in California than it would be just about anywhere else. Um, And... The, yeah, the key element is this this idea of, yeah, this train is leaving. Um, do you want to be part of the process or do you want to be an opponent in the process? Um, and the building trade groups, um, they they played a, uh, a an integral role in helping to craft the standards. Um, so what they what they did was um, they made it so that if you're in a area that doesn't work very well for solar. Maybe you're in a really shaded area. Maybe there's other um, obstacles. Um, 
the building code has a whole bunch of different exceptions. Um, uh, so the, the building trades people I spoke with were in the building business people I spoke with were, were saying that that's what they they wanted to make sure that these were work, workable rules because they were sure that um, the rules were going to happen one way or another in Illinois or in Ohio or in just about any other state. If you were to see a, a proposal like this to change the building codes, it would be it would just be World War Three with the um, the a lot of folks in the business community. Of course, there are businesses that stand to benefit a lot from rooftop solar, but a lot of builders are naturally reluctant to to want to, uh, to, to do something like this. It seems like the logical thing to do, though, and, and yet there's so much resistance to changing building codes around the country. There is, in the, the, the reluctance is that just think about anything that you or I do in our lives and how um, if you're a builder, you you design your whole business around doing things a certain way and, and following the codes and the various big and small changes to the codes are an important part of that. And you're reluctant to, to change. You're reluctant to um, want to see a dramatic overhaul because you've designed your whole business around doing it a certain way. Um, and, and then there's also cost issues. Um, if I'm a builder, I'm building houses and I'm selling houses. And I know that if these new codes mean it's going to increase the price of a house by a certain amount of money, um, of course, all the other builders have to follow the same rules. But it it becomes – it's a complicating factor in building a product that you want to then sell at a competitive price. And it's just another – it's another thing that a lot of builders would rather not have to deal with. They'd like to, they'd like to be able to put solar on a house if a customer wants it, or if it's part of a community where everyone has solar. Um, but the idea of requirements um, in most states would be controversial, would be extremely controversial. And it is somewhat controversial in certain corners in California. Um, but yeah, it's in terms of the, the debate that mattered before this, um, the commission that, updated the building codes, it was a very collegial process. Now, you quote the Natural Resources Defense Council. They're looking at something called the International Energy Conservation Code and, and trying to roll this out in other states. Are, is there a logical next step in this, or is California uh, such an outlier in this country that it is going to be standalone on this kind of thing for a while? What I expect is that the next step is for a lot of people to take a couple steps back and just watch how this works in California. Um, as I as I say in the article, um, the the actual share of new housing as, as a percentage of the housing stock is only is only about two percent each year. So it's one of those things that is this is a lot of new solar coming on the market, but. It, it's it's not as much as is already on the market in California, and it's coming on the market every year. So this will be an expansion, but it's workable within California's system. Still, though, there are questions about, are there enough workers to install solar? Is there enough solar equipment? Um, the California process, I think, did a pretty good job of answering those questions. But if I'm in another state that might consider this, um, I'm going to watch and just just see what happens. See how the system adapts. Um, I've seen I've seen suggestions of other states that might that also have 
um, already have high solar adoption and have <clears throat> a lot of great solar resources. But I don't see any I don't see any logical next state um, in the next couple of years. Dan Garino writes for Inside Climate News. We're talking about his article, In a First, California Requires Solar Panels for New Homes. Will Other States Follow? Dan, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Let's talk about where this region is at on integrating solar into architecture. Architect Nate Kipnis is an architect that's uh, based in Evanston. His Kipnis Architecture and Planning specializes in sustainable, low-carbon design. And Nate is co-chair of the American Institute of Architects 2030 Commitment Working Group. It aims to get all architects designing to net zero by 2030. Thanks for joining us, Nate. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Uh, we were just talking about uh, what we were, how far ahead uh, California is, uh, as opposed to other states, um, specifically when it comes to rooftop solar in Illinois. How far ahead is California? Yeah, California is just literally off the charts. They're, they have about five and a half million homes that have solar. We have twelve thousand nine hundred. So it's just like wow. we're not even a rounding error to them. And, and, and other states that do well, where, where are they at? Yeah, so we're 33rd. Um, you look at a state like New Jersey, that they're number five. They have uh, 370,000. Arizona's third with 505,000. So we are quite a bit lower, but we have um, the uh, Future Energy Jobs Act uh, just about to start, and that's going to make us go from 33rd somewhere into the top 10, and uh, that's going to happen relatively soon. So that's very encouraging. Why is that going to be so important? Uh, If we can't, you know, we don't require solar on new homes, this seems like, uh, what are the things that the Future Energy Jobs Act is going to do? Well, they're um, going to be committing a heck of a lot of money for the uh, for renewables, so 180 million a year, and that's going to ramp up to 220 million a year, and that's for solar, wind, and uh, community solar rooftop work. So, in places that you can't get sun, or that you're a renter, you have a bad roof orientation, cities might have an open area, and they'll be able to put community solar down, and then that way they can assign those panels to uh, people that want to have them. All right. Uh, where do you think people like builders are at on rooftop solar right now in this area? We were hearing about California, and they make solar-ready rooftops already for everybody, and kind of regardless. Uh, where is people in the in Illinois? Well, you know, California is uh, a great state for a lot of good reasons, and they're way ahead from that standpoint. I think the builders here. Like I, like your previous caller had mentioned, they, you know, builders will do it if someone wants it, but it's really not anywhere near the demand that in California, it's just kind of part of the culture there. So I don't think anyone, you know, I don't think builders would say no to someone if they wanted it. I think a smart move is builders should start um, pre-wiring for this, putting in conduits so that once someone wants panels or incentives change or people get some more money, whatever the reason, they're ready to put them in and they're not going to have to do a major uh, modification to the house to allow that. How much does it cost to put in pre-wiring for solar when you're building a house? 
Yeah, it's a couple hundred dollars. It's just a, a good-sized conduit running around and going down to the panel. So it's really, really a simple, easy thing to do. We do it in all the homes we design. Uh, are there other things that are people should be knowledgeable about? I understand battery storage is becoming a bigger issue, and uh, when the sun doesn't shine and things like that, uh, battery storage is good. So there's a, a good coming together of a lot of things. So the price of solar keeps dropping. The price of batteries keeps dropping. And so those two things come together, and you can have your solar panels. They can store power in, in the batteries, and then the batteries can provide that power either at night or when the price of energy is high if you have time-of-use power. So it's going to be a real game-changer. Uh, to allow that, the other thing that it does is uh, something we we like to promote in our work is resilient design. So the ability to handle storms or anything like that, when you get a power outage, you're going to be ready to go with a battery backup system that's connected to solar. That sounds handy indeed. Now, uh, what does this do to the design of structures? If If we were really going to knuckle down and get serious about putting solar on rooftops, what would happen? Well, I imagine you're going to see this in California. So a lot of the homes, I mean, the vast majority are going to start to be designed with southern exposure, you know, something that we should be doing anyway. And that should be relatively easy to do. So the the long axis of the house will probably be uh, facing, you know, you'll have long southern exposure and you'll probably have a roof angle that's set for that particular latitude to get the best solar. And you probably will have less uh penetrations through the roof like dormers. Um, you know, not necessarily to all have the same type of building, but you're going to start to see that become, um, you know, more of a prevalent style. What about cost? Is uh, there anything that would drive um, cost and make it more advantageous for people to put solar on, on their roofs? You know, like I said, the price of solar has just been plummeting. So if you look at the price of just the cells back in like 1975, it was uh, 75 or $76 a watt, and now it's about 70 cents a watt or 60 cents. It's it's just fallen tremendously and continues to fall, and then more people want them. They ramp up production, price goes down, and it just keeps going like that. So now with California doing that huge initiative, um, I certainly believe the price is going to continue to go down, and um, that would incentivize people to put them on. Uh, the payback is going to start to uh, become less and less, and, and I just see the demand going up no matter what. It, it, places like Hawaii seem to have led the way, and they've got extremely high energy costs. Are, are, is there something we can do to make our energy costs high? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, there is. Um, Hawaii is an interesting case just because they are, you know, they are so out there on an island that, yeah, uh, energy costs are very high. We are, you know, we have relatively low electricity um, here primarily because of uh, the nuclear plants that we have. But those at some point are going to come offline and we're going to start to see our costs go up you know, getting closer to the rest of the country and hopefully not, but like the East Coast has almost, uh, you know, two and a half times, nearly three times the cost of electricity that we have. We're very low here, which is the one good thing is for electric cars. I mean, we have just super great pricing from that standpoint, but it is, it does inhibit a little bit um, the payback on the projects because 
electricity so inexpensive. How long do you think it'll be before we do something like California and mandate solar for new building? You know, that there are so many aspects to that that um, I'm not, I, I don't know how we're going to exactly match that. California is a unique situation. They have a different temperate climate that we have. You know, we have a very different climate. And I'm just not sure. And I'm also not sure that that's the right answer. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done, um, building efficiency. There's a, a large, large-scale wind. Um, there's lots of things that play into it. And I think each area of the country has to have their own solution that makes sense for them. So for example, we've got great wind here, which is important. Um, our solar is pretty darn good. You know, you look at like Germany, which has worse sun than Alaska, and yet they can generate 7% of their power, you know, and, uh, we've, we could do much, much better. And we've got much better sun actually than, um, than that than Germany. So we could do even better. So maybe five years down the road, we get building codes. <laughs> Ten to... uh, yeah, you know, you hope it doesn't take long because uh, every year is getting more and more critical on climate change. So um, we'd want that to happen quickly. Uh, codes typically run in three-year cycles. So that's one interesting aspect of it. But um, I don't, you know, California, I like, like your caller said, I think a lot of states are going to be looking at what they're doing and then they're going to decide based on that, you know, give it a little time, um, give it a little feedback and see where, you know, what's good and bad about it. And then how does it adapt to the exact conditions we have in Illinois? Architect Nate Kipnis, his Evanston-based firm, Kipnis Architecture and Planning, specializes in sustainable, low-carbon design. Nate is co-chair of American Institute of Architects 2030 Commitment Working Group, and it aims to get all architects to design to net zero by 2030. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nate. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about a low-carbon way to have fun adventure cycling tours. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's no better way to get to know a place than by bike. Tom Lyman takes it to another level. Tom is an avid urban exploration cyclist. His adventure cycling tours are quirky bike tours that explore art, history, and architecture. Nice to see you, Tom. I took a tour a couple weeks ago and had a great time going to the um, Pullman Porters Museum and Big Marsh. We had a great big long ride. It was fun. Thank you. Um, how did you get started doing this? How does a person decide to have bike tours? Um, well, what I did is I started exploring the city and I started going further and further and started posting pictures of these faraway neighborhoods. And a lot of people were interested in them and asked if they can come riding with me the next time I, I go out riding. This is so not I, your real job. No, no, this is not my real <laughs> job. Uh, I work in IT support during the day. But so then... Um, I just, one thing led to another, and it started organizing tours after that. 
So you're going like a couple times a month now. Yes. And you do all sorts of tours. Uh, I went to the Pullman Porters Museum in Big Marsh, but you do, um, give us more examples. You do graffiti tours. You do all sorts of tours. Yeah, there's a Steelworkers Pilgrimage Tour, which I personally like. Um, we go down to Steelworkers Park. We go to Marktown. And there's lots of points of interest in between that connect the dots, basically, of the history. You have quirky tours like your pothole bike tour. It's about um, an artist who's filled in potholes with his mosaics. Yes, and that's a great way to go explore his pothole art because it's kind of spread out throughout the city. So we go on these rides with a, a planned route, and he comes along and gives us the backstory to why he picked the art design for every pothole that he puts out there. How do these kind of tours develop? Because they seem so different, and they have different people coming in and talking during them. Uh, how does it happen? Yeah, it's kind of organic. I just come up with an idea, and I throw it out there. And then, you know, ironically, people start contacting me, and they want to get involved, which helps out a lot. And sometimes I throw a tour out there, and it's not fully planned at the moment, but everything comes together at the end when people start getting involved. So people suggest places to go and people to talk to on the tour itself. Yes, or they'll want to host us and give us a personal tour of a building that we normally can't get into or a neighborhood. A lot of people have probably never been on a group cycling tour. Um, Does it go fast? Uh, Do people... Uh, meet obstacles? How does it go? Um, We go around 10 to 12 miles an hour with several breaks. Um, I call it a a semi-supported tour, so I usually have a a couple people with me that are uh, familiar with repairing bicycles. I bring a lot of tools with me, spare inner tubes, parts we might need. Routes are pre-planned and tested about three times before any ride, and I look ahead to make sure there's no running events or marathons that might interfere with the routes. So um, a lot of people who take the tour, are, they're not super avid cyclists all the time. They're just people. Exactly. The, the, the rides can go anywhere from 20 up to 100-mile round trip with train options on the way back. I have often had people on the rides that have only done 10 miles, 15 miles, and they ended up doing 40 at the end of the day because we take breaks. We don't go that fast. Their mind is occupied. They're enjoying themselves, and they didn't realize that they can actually bike 35 to 40 miles in a day. It's a super great way to see the city and learn about the city. What, what have you learned in, in doing this? Um, I've learned a lot more about the city than I actually knew, and that's why I kind of started doing this. Um, I don't, I'm not a historian or anything, so I'm also basically my own customer. I enjoy going on the tours and learning from everybody else who gets involved and helps along the way. We thought we'd chat about one of your upcoming tours and one that you've done before and has been uh, really successful. A lot of people enjoy it, and it's the Chicago Bike History Tour. And you've got a couple of your friends here who were uh, involved with that. Uh, Kerry Williams is here. He's with the Chicago chapter of The Wheelmen, and that is an organization dedicated to restoring and riding bikes made before 1932. That is awesome. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So you've come along on the tours and... Uh, kind of been on one of those gigantic wheel bikes, is uh, it? Yes, one of the high wheel bicycles. That's and, correct. And um, what? I, most people have probably never seen anybody ride one. Um, high wheel bikes started in America around 1876 and were uh, the rage of the road until about 1889 uh, when the safety pretty much took over. Um, only because of the, the, the safety factor, you could go faster with geared up wheels. 
But if you've never ridden a high bike, you've uh, sold yourself short. The view from the top is incredible. Um, because when you, everyone's walking around, your eyes are four to five feet off the ground. And when you ride a bike, same thing. But when you ride a high bike, it gives you a whole different perspective of life. It's the closest you can get to heaven and still be touching the ground. <laughs> how, lo- how long did you go in the bike tour? Did you t- do the whole thing on the high bike? Oh, yes, yes. We, we can do 100 miles. I've done 110 miles in a day on a bike, on a high bike. So, but we rode out to Oak Park and had a fabulous time. Um, and very, everyone's waving and smiling. When you're riding a high bike, the whole world is very happy. <laughs> I'll bet it is. And I bet it creates a sensation among the uh, participants in the tour. It's, it's fun to see. Yeah, yes, it does. It turns out to be like a rolling party and camaraderie. Also with us is Chris McAuliffe. He's the author of the book Cycling in Chicago, and you're a part of the tour, too. Nice to meet you, Chris. Good to meet you. How did you decide to write about cycling in Chicago? Well, I've been a cyclist for many years and uh, also like history and like Chicago history. I've always kind of um, uh, been intrigued. Just Chicago is a, is a relatively young town, if you will, but it has got a lot of history. And I'd always heard there was uh, just uh, anecdotally there were a lot of good stories, a lot of good history stories with the start of Schwinn and Major Taylor and some of the other uh, personalities that you know I wanted to kind of explore that. And then I also thought, you know what, it'd be fun to kind of commit commit this to a book. And uh, so I uh, approached a publisher, and uh, within about ten days, I think I'd signed a contract, and fourteen months later, I had a published book. The um, p- thing people probably don't know about Chicago is that it was the Detroit of bicycles. Uh, there were a lot of places manufacturing bikes at one time. Indeed. Um, at one time, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, there were over 30 bike manufacturers uh, in the city of Chicago. Two-thirds of all bikes manufactured in the United States were manufactured within the city limits of Chicago. So it truly was what Detroit was to auto manufacturing. Chicago was to bike manufacturing. They even had what was called Bicycle Row. West Lake Street was the home to the corporate headquarters or factories of probably 20 bike manufacturers, including Schwinn. Wow. Do, do we, is there anything surviving today that we can drive by? Are there places that uh, we can see? Yeah, indeed. The original uh, Schwinn headquarters is on West uh, Lake Street. It's now a condominium complex, and that's actually going to be one of the stops on the upcoming uh, tour. Um, but it was converted years ago um, to uh, loft space, and so um, loft condominiums and apartments also, that's still there. Western Wheelworks Factory is still there. Um, that's up on the north side. But there are many, many um, uh, things you can see that are still standing today. Carrie, tell us something about Western Wheelworks. What's that thing? Um, Western Wheelworks started out with Western Toy. They were a manufacturer of uh, children's perambulators, carriages, uh, wagons. But uh, late 1876, they added uh, the high-wheel bicycle, uh, basically a wagon wheel, large wagon wheel in the front and a small wagon wheel on the back, uh, using a lot of cast parts. So it was a low-end bicycle, but um, they are attributed with being the first manufacturers of American high-wheel bicycles. Um, Pope rapidly got all the patents, uh, so he would have a monopoly regarding the bicycle industry in America, and then, um, unfortunately, um, Chicago manufacturers were basically uh, confined to making only low-grade bicycles up until about 1885. But Western Wheelworks... um, was a major manufacturer here in Chicago, uh, later moving to um, on uh, Well Street, where their uh, Cobbler Square originally was the um, Western Wheelworks, where the Crescent Bike was made, probably the largest manufacturer in America at that time, uh, somewhere around 400,000 bikes annually uh, from uh, 96, 97, and 98, and then wow. the crash happened. 
So all through the 90s, uh, bicycles were the rage. Everyone wanted a bicycle. But like everything else in industry, as soon as the Americans can make it rapidly and easy, um, the price start tumbling. And once everybody can have this um, uh, wonderful thing, no one wants it. So the, the crash happened in 1898, and by that time, uh, ABC was formed, American Bicycle Corporation, to combine all, have a monopoly of the bikes, and then they started selling off the, the, the various corporations. It, was, it sounded like a pretty fast-moving industry. Almost all the people who manufactured bikes seemed to be making something before that. Like there were, Monarch was a sewing machine company, and then they made bikes, and then they, they did something else when they ran out of customers. They, they uh, bicycling was like the dot-com of the time. <laughs> the 1890s, uh, the 1880s and late 1870s, it was a, a, an old boys network. So you basically had the affluent male from 16 all the way to the old age of about 30 buying the bicycles. But once they became out with a woman's bike, they automatically doubled the ridership. And with the pneumatic tire introduction in America, uh, Featherstone here in Chicago uh, had the, the, the Dunlap patent um, and brought the pneumatic tire basically to America. So now you have a rideable bike for ladies, and it's comfortable, and it just exploded. We're talking a bit about bike history. Carrie Williams is with the Chicago chapter of The Wheelmen, an organization dedicated to restoring and riding bikes made before 1932. Chris McAuliffe is the author of Cycling in Chicago, and Tom Lyman is a avid urban adventure cyclist, and he is the uh, founder of Adventure Bike Tours. And uh, we're talking about some of the highlights of the Chicago uh, bike history tour that they'll be taking soon. Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask about Major Taylor. Some people might have heard of Major Taylor, but probably a lot of people have never heard of Major Taylor. And he was a pretty exciting figure in uh, sports history, period. Yeah, fascinating guy. He um, was the first African-American world champion in virtually any sport. Um, and just a worldwide uh, following at that time. He um, Cycling was gigantic before, around 1900. As a sport, it was huge. Oh, absolutely. You had track racing on velodromes, um, so it was generally uh, mile or two-mile races. They still – it's an Olympic sport now, um, but at the velodromes, and he excelled at that. He was a sprinter and now uh, collected all kinds of championships, including world championships, raced mostly over in Europe and was able to race in the northern states but was not allowed to race in the southern states. Um, he retired in uh, – uh, about 1906, 1907, fell on hard times during the Depression, uh, lost all his money, all of his winnings, um, died a, a pauper and was buried in a pauper's grave on the south side of Chicago um, until – and was there until – his body was there until 1948 when the Schwinn family um, realized – that he was buried in a pauper's grave and they had a proper grave made and a headstone and they had a um, proper burial with all kinds of um, bicycling executives of that era of the 1940s to honor him and, and his career. When I look at the pictures, he's the only African-American guy in the pictures, usually about biking at all. It's just like he's the only one. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing and really just a trailblazer, um, tremendous athlete, had to just put up with just, um, you know, uh, some, some tough times um, just racing on that circuit. And uh, that's, again, he raced uh, quite a bit over in Europe, but here in Chicago in the northern states and really raced quite a bit down in Garfield Park. They had a velodrome down there and he set the world record in the one mile championship, I think, in 1899. 
I was reading, he did make a good bit of money while he was doing it because he was a champion. He toured Europe and I was reading his figures and they were very, uh, that was a lot of money for anybody. Oh, absolutely. He was one of the highest paid athletes at the time. And, um, you know, just you know, the winnings and sponsorships, just like you would have today, uh, sponsorships of athletes and his winnings from his different races. Um, just, you know, he was, one, again, one of the highest paid guys out there on the, on the circuit. And, Tom, there's a, a Major Taylor uh, trail in this area. There's a trail named after Major Taylor. Yes, that, there is you, on the south side. You probably have bumped through a mm-hmm. few times. Yeah, it, it cuts through Beverly. What kind of uh, – did you know much about Major Taylor before you started doing this? No, I didn't. Uh, there is also a annual Major Taylor victory ride that the group puts on that takes you to his um, burial site. Uh, that's really interesting. The um, history, uh, the, the, there's a lot of history we did, just don't know about bikes. Um, what other things did you learn about bikes doing this? Yeah, I think um, the fact, for example, that uh, Chicago hosted the Pan American Games in 1959. Cycling was a major part of those games. Um, they raced down uh, Gately Park on the south side. They closed mm-hmm. off uh, Lakeshore Drive for the uh, the road events. That's uh, the original bike to drive, then. The original bike to drive, exactly, for Olympic, for uh, Pan American medals. Um, you know, and you find a lot of uh, just kind of quirky stories out there. I worked uh, closely with the Waston family. The um, great-grandfather, Emo, came over in 1910. They have had a bike shop here in Chicago continuously open since 1910. Wow. Yeah, and it's really quite remarkable. And I worked with his great with his grandson and his great grandson, and they have just tremendous archives and you know, just a lot of personal stories because they knew many of the six day racers uh, that raced at the Chicago Stadium was a big cycling venue, the old um, Coliseum, where they would race not six days straight, but maybe 12 hours on, 12 hours off. You'd have a partner and you'd race around an indoor velodrome, and um, you would, like anything else at the, uh, the stadium, you know, kind of a rowdy crowd and, you know, drinking a lot of beer and gambling and betting on the racers. Uh, and it was just a, a, a massive endurance f- feat. Um, Tom, the tour that um, people can take with Adventure Cycling Tours, you stop by it with people who've got lots of memorabilia from uh, this era and, and people with old bikes. Right. Um, I have some memorabilia. Carrie does. Uh, we'll be stopping at Cycle Smithy. They have a lot of memorabilia and old bikes and Oscar Watson and Gary Cyclery. What did you learn about where, uh, you know, I remember the old uh, biking museum that was in North Pier for a while. Uh, what, what happened to things like that? Or are there, who has the stuff? I believe a lot of that stuff has been auctioned off. Yes, the entire contents was auctioned off. Most of it is in New Bremen, the American Bicycle Museum of America, uh, owned okay. by Jim Dickey down there. So it's privately held. It's a, a nice museum, but it's in New Bremen, Ohio. Where do the wheelmen usually do their thing? What, what kind of – this well, is a national organization it's a nation, with people uh, actually international organization. Uh, we have our annual meet this year in Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, two years ago, we were in uh, Elmhurst. Uh, we had about 140 people out there. And we do our 10-mile uh, ride where we ride in uh, period costume and uh, go in and, like And you parade. guys come out in period costume for the, for uh, the bike tour. I, I will be yes yes <laughs> and I'll invite us. hopefully you'll have some other wheelmen with us for the for the ride on June 10th. So that sounds super fun. How, how much does a, a old bike set you back? How do you get? Uh, well, it's kind of like you, how much you... is a car worth? That type of thing. So it depends on. There's good, bad, and there's ugly. Uh, a, a, an original antique high wheel bike uh, would start out around two thousand dollars or something rideable. But you can get a safety bike from the 1890s, which are wonderful bikes, for you know four or five hundred dollars. 
Okay, so and are, do people still make um, big wheel bikes? There are modern replicas, yes, um, and you still can get tires. They're solid tires, like kind of used on the uh, the Amish uh, carriages. Um, solid tires does not sound comfortable. Um, but you have <laughs> these very you. long spokes, and you have a leather hammock saddle, so it's very comfortable up there. Come out June 10th. I'll put you on my bike. Oh, I'm coming out June okay. 10th. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take some pictures, too. This will be super fun. Um, I, 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 lots of people uh, come to, like, the Oberlin event. You, you um, get, we'll have uh, about 140, 150. In universe? We'll have about 150 Wheelman members there uh, from all across the country. But then we'll also do public presentations. We do demonstrations, uh, history of the bicycle, kind of a dog and pony type show. And we're also going to participate with the Critical Mass in Cleveland that night. And there's ah. going to be an event at the uh, Velodrome. So <laughs> well, we've raced on Velodromes also. Well, that sounds super fun. Carrie Williams is with the Chicago chapter of the Wheelman an organization dedicated to restoring and riding bikes before 1932. Chris McAuliffe is author of the book Cycling in Chicago. They will both be taking part in Adventure Bike Tours uh, event on Chicago Bike History on June 10th. And I know there's just a few slots left for that, Tom. If people want more information about Adventure Cycling Tours, what do they do? Um, You can go to www.adventurecycling.tours or just search on Eventbrite. The next ride you could participate in that there's spots open would be the Pedal to Pullman ride June 3rd. And um, Pedal to Pullman sounds fun. I was down there with you, and you seem to know a great deal about that area. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, Tom Lyman is the or, uh, proprietor of Adventure Bike Tours. He is an avid urban adventure cyclist, and it's been uh, great to see you. Th- thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about Mark Zuckerberg and what he's doing testifying before the European Parliament. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Forget to mention the bicycle. Somebody told the world the beauty. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.